you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 3. This morning, we're to meditate on a passage that is foundational, that is just critical for all followers of Jesus. Romans 3, 21 through 26, looking at this morning, it reveals the very character of God. It, in a very clear, powerful way, this text shows the brilliance and the glory of God. But it also, secondly, exposes you and me for who we truly are. And then it also allows us to see what our response to God must be. So let's read God's word, Romans 3, 21 through 26. As the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Paul to write, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. God's word never ceases to amaze me. In this one remarkable paragraph that we just read, what we're seeing is so much of who God is and how we must live in light of that. But before we can even begin to make sense of this very profound and rich text, we have to know the context because you can't understand Romans 3, 21 through 26 unless you understand what came before it. Romans chapter 1 Verses 1 through 17 is an introduction. It's a greeting by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. With chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. So 118 through 320 is one unit. And what you're seeing with verse 21 that we just read in chapter 3, it begins, it picks up from what Paul just finished saying. And so what is being revealed in the previous section that we have to understand before we can then make any sense of the text that we just read? Well, to put it very bluntly, what it says is that we are all condemned before a holy God. If I'm going to pull no punches, be very honest with you. If you read it, you'll see for yourself. It begins with Romans 1, verse 18. In this, in this section, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's how he begins this section in verse 18 of chapter 1. The, the Gentiles, those that had a Greek background, did not know God's word. They didn't have God's revealed will. So they didn't have the privilege of having the Bible. But what they did have was general revelation. They could generally see that God was the creator. They could see with creation itself, and creation testifies. Creation cries out that there is intelligent 
design. The world is not a result of time plus chance. It's not possible. Too intricate. It cries out for intelligent design. There is a creator. It says in that same chapter 1 that God's divine attributes and his power are evident through creation itself. And even someone without the Bible can see that. But beyond that, the Gentiles also had a conscience. They know, as all humans do, we know right from wrong. And it says that we suppress this truth and unrighteousness. And it says, also in chapter 1, it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And so trying to figure out why the world exists apart from a God and trying to be so intelligent, trying to be wise, we become foolish. For the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And these Gentiles expressed no gratitude to God. And they rejected any sense of dependence upon him. And they cared nothing about how to glorify God. And so these Gentiles were not innocent. They were guilty. And so what God revealed in general revelation through creation in their own conscience was enough to damn the Gentiles. They were condemned, it says. But what about the Jews? Chapter 2 in Romans talks about the Jews, those that are religious. Well, what about them? Were they any better off than the Gentiles that didn't have God's word? Because the Jews, after all, had what they called the Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament in the Bible. They had God's word. They had the standard. They knew how to please God. And yet, the Jews were equally guilty. They did not uphold the standard. They did not obey God. They were just as guilty as the Gentile counterparts. In the chapter 2, Paul begins to describe how religion doesn't help. How religion can't change your heart. It didn't for them, and it can't today. Religion is powerless to change you from the inside out much like we see with the Jews being described in chapter 2. So by chapter 3, Paul is saying there's no distinction. Jews and Gentiles equally condemned by a holy God. And so we think, well, what about the innocent people? Well, Romans 1, 2, and 3 makes it very clear. They don't exist. There are no innocent people. Every one of us stands under the righteous wrath of a holy God. And in chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, he makes this very clear where Paul strings together multiple Old Testament passages, primarily from the Psalms and from Isaiah. And everything that he says in this section in chapter 3, 10 through 18, is designed to prove one point. All humans are sinful. Here's a sampling of what he says in that section. He says, none is righteous, No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a very dark picture of humanity, but it's in the Bible, and it's what God says about you 
and me. And this message is actually very difficult for a 21st century audience. This is hard for us because we live in a world where we have our atheist friends that will deny that God exists at all. And we have our agnostic friends who doubt that he exists, but both equally are denying absolute truth. Truth is subjective. You have your opinion, and I have my opinion. And you have your path to God, and I have my path to God. And we have billions of people on this planet that are very religious, very religious. And they have all of this moral and religious effort, and they believe that these religious efforts are going to be sufficient to lead them to God. And there are millions more who will say, just try to be a good person. Just be kind to others. Just try your best to do the right thing. Just follow whatever religious path makes sense to you, because in the end, all paths are going to lead to the same God anyway. This is our world that we live in today. And the idea, that the very notion of sin seems so antiquated and Victorian and prudish. And the idea of sin is so harsh and so judgmental. And why are you Christians always judging people? And, and then we have this word that rules the day. It's tolerance. We should just be tolerant of one another. And we all want to have our independent points of view. And so the motto that rules the 21st century is just live and let live. Just you live how you want and just let others live their lives. And so for most people alive today, and I'm sure many in this room as well because we're also people, we tend to think of sin as being very horizontal. Now, when I say horizontal, I'm saying that we think of sin in terms of how we hurt other people. And so we put sin, if we even agree with sin at all, it'd be in the category of only horizontal. And so we say things like this. Well, I'm not hurting anyone. As long as I'm not hurting anyone, it's not wrong. Why can't two men or two women who love each other and want to commit to each other and enjoy marriage or a sexual relationship, why, why can't those two men enjoy each other in a sexual relationship? They're not hurting anyone. Just leave them alone. Stop being so judgmental. Just let them be. Live and let live. They're hurting no one. They're both committed. They're going to be monogamous, so they say, but it doesn't ever happen. And they say, just leave them alone. And so then even we as believers, we, we could have the same mentality. And we can say things like, well, why can't I turn to the bottle or to a little pornography or a little extra serving of cake, like, you know, like all of it? Or why can't I turn to a little extra shopping? Why, why can't I turn to hours of mind-numbing TV to just find relief? from the stress of life. I'm not hurting anyone. If no one is getting hurt, it's not wrong. This, this form of thinking that dominates our world today, that views sin as purely horizontal, has not read Romans 1 through 3. 
many of us, if not most of us, have little thought of how our sin offends God. Because our sin, first and foremost, is not horizontal. Our sin, first and foremost, is vertical. It's against God. And our sin is disgusting to God. It is. It's like if you have your trash can and you forget to empty it and go out for spring break and you come back two weeks later, it's going to be disgusting, right? That is our sin before a holy God. It literally disgusts him, which is why the Ten Commandments, he begins with, you will have no other gods before me. He doesn't get to anything horizontal. Number five, honor your father and your mother, and then he continues with more. And so all of the horizontal sin happens after you have first already sinned against God. That's what sin is. It's against God. But you say, but what about good people? There are people that are religious and, and they really try to do good and they really are doing their best by following their social or, or their national religion and, and their cultural reality and they're trying to do good and be a good person. What's the problem with that? The problem that even though we try to do good things, and we all do this. When we seek to do good, we tend to do it independent from God. And we can have self-centered motives. And we want to do good selfishly so that we can then go to God and say things like, God, look at me. I go to church. I even read the Bible. I even put some germs in the offering bag. I've dropped this bad habit. I'm doing all these good things. I'm a religious person. God, you should be impressed with me and all of, all of my religious and my moral achievements and efforts. I deserve to go to heaven because of what I've done and how well I've performed. And this, this type of thinking so permits even believers where we think because I'm a good person and, and I go to church, I shouldn't have problems. I shouldn't have bad things happen to me because I'm trying to follow Jesus. And we think that our performance somehow is impressing God. And this type of thinking puts you and me, the individual, as the standard of righteousness. And we want to put ourselves up as the standard. And then we say, I, God, I am the standard. And so therefore, I make myself as God. Because deep down inside, because of our sin, we all want autonomy. We want independence from God. And so we want to earn heaven by setting a moral standard that we can reach on our own with no thought of God's standard and no thought about our sin offends him. Now, this type of thinking, at its root, you know what it is? Idolatry. We want to be the God of our own world. And God made you and me to worship him, to find our identity in him, our joy in him, 
our purpose, our meaning, everything, who we are, wrapped up in praising God. And so that's what worship is, is worshiping him, is valuing him, seeing more worth in Jesus than anything else. And so he made us to do that. But when we take God out of that place and we put ourselves, we are worshiping ourselves. It's idolatry. We're taking God out of his rightful place as the standard of righteousness. And 21st century people are no different than the first century people that were reading this from the Apostle Paul. Multitudes of people refusing to acknowledge God as God and putting themselves in the place of God and trying to become the the standard of morality and defining how to get to heaven on their own achievements or religious efforts. However, the one and only true God revealed in the Bible through his son, Jesus Christ, who is a trinity with Father and Son and Spirit, this one true God will not be mocked. He won't. We live in an age where people say, well, I just want inner peace. And I just want happiness or I want fulfillment. And we're looking for all of these things here in the world. And we want it based upon our accomplishments or by manipulating other people to get what we want from them. But there's a real question that most people don't ask. And this question, the ultimate question that I pray that you're going to ask today if you've never asked it before This is the real question that we must be asking. It's not, how can I find inner peace, or how can I find fulfillment, or how can I... No, no, don't ask those questions. Those will be answered. They will flow from the real question. The real question is, how can I be reconciled to God? That's the question. How can I, a sinner, be reconciled to a holy God. Romans 1, 2, and 3 reveals the root problem with humanity, which is our offensiveness to God. And he ends the section with chapter 3, verse 20, saying, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No moral efforts, no religion, no works, no achievements. There is nothing that you or I could ever do to be justified in the eyes of God. Based upon our efforts, we will never be reconciled to God because we are corrupted deep inside. None of us can do enough good to to satisfy the demands of God's justice. God demands a holy and perfect and absolute righteousness, and all of us fail miserably. So all humans have a problem. And unless we agree on the problem, we can't find a solution. So you, married people, which is most of you, if you and your wife are having a problem and, and, and you're not reconciling the problem, if you don't first agree on what the problem is, you will never find the solution for it. And this applies in every, every area of life. It can be in your workplace. This can be with anything. You apply it in your life. If you don't agree on what the problem is, then there's no way to find a solution. And so we have to agree with God that we 
are lost. And we need to be reconciled to God. And that brings us to the next verse, Romans 3, 21. Let's read this again so that we can get a better sense. Now that we know the context of Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me give you the primary truth. So the main idea being revealed in this one paragraph. God reveals his glorious righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The main idea is that God reveals his glorious righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. God is righteous. Yet deep down inside, we all know that we're not righteous. And some of you recognize that you're not righteous. And so you live with anxiety. You live with insecurity, with the sense of inadequacy or of not measuring up, with the sense of not being worthy. You live with the sense of fear of the future. And so what do you do with all of these emotions? Well, some of you are going to drown yourself in your work to try to numb that. Others are going to drown yourself in some other addiction. Some of you may give yourself to your marriage and hope that your husband will satisfy you. Others of you will say, well, God doesn't exist. And somehow through, through supposed intellectual arguments, you want to argue God away so that this gnawing emptiness inside of you won't gnaw away at you anymore. But it's not working. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it's not working. That sense is still there that you know that you're not right with God. And what you need is not inner peace. What you need is to be reconciled with the one true God. You know what we need? What every one of us needs? We need righteousness. But not righteousness that we can earn because we can't. We don't need righteousness based upon our efforts. We need a radical righteousness. A righteousness that comes from God himself. That's what we need. That's how we can be reconciled to God, and that will lead to things like peace and joy and fulfillment and security. It's supernatural. It comes from above. It's transcendent, this radical righteousness, and that is the only solution to our problem, and our problem is our sin and condemnation, and this text shows the solution. Let me give you four truths, four truths in this text. One, Righteousness of God is revealed in the law of God. Number one, what we're seeing in this text is the righteousness of God is revealed in the law of God. 
So throughout redemptive history, you know what you saw? God revealing himself. How? Through his word, through the lives of his people that would submit to his word. He was revealing his righteousness through the law. God is perfectly holy and glorious. But listen, God is not holy because he keeps the law. This is important. God is not holy because he keeps the law. No. The law is holy because it reveals the character of God. God is holy. And the law reveals his holy character. And it's displayed in his word. So verse 21 says, but now. But now is how he begins this paragraph. And so something new, something new is taking place. With the coming of Jesus, God has manifested this next stage in his unfolding revelation. And what he's revealing here progressively, now culminating with the person of Jesus, is God is revealing his righteousness. You see, up until the coming of Jesus, God revealed righteousness through the law. But he says now, righteousness is revealed, it says, apart from the law in verse 21. And so God's fullest and complete revelation of his righteousness, his glory is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so God's righteousness has arrived, and his name is Jesus. Which is why Paul then writes, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So saying all of the Old Testament, every single law, every single story, and poem, and writing, and prophecy, Everything in the Old Testament was pointing directly to Jesus. He is a full manifestation of God's righteousness, which is why we read earlier, our brother James read out of Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. When I asked him to read that this week, he was like, read from where? And how many verses? That's like half a page in Leviticus. And I was like, yeah, isn't it awesome? He's like, yeah. That's awesome. I'm like, practice it. It'll be great. It was wonderful that he read God's word for us this morning out of Leviticus 16. Because what we read in the worship gathering earlier was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And how there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be blood that was spilled on the mercy seat. God is merciful, but there had to be a payment for their sin. And once a year, the high priest would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people who were guilty. And everything that you're seeing in Leviticus is pointing to what Jesus did on the cross. So the righteousness of God is revealed through the law of God. And only Christ, fully human and yet fully God, obeyed the law without sin. So he's the final solution to our problem of sin and condemnation. The solution is not try harder, be more religious, or be a good person. That's not the solution. What is a solution? Let's read the next section. Number two, righteousness of God is is received by faith alone. So number one, God's righteousness is revealed in the law. Number two, his righteousness is received by faith alone. Verse 22 tells us that the righteousness of God can only be received, Paul writes, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
Now, he uses two words. He says faith, and he says believe. Now, in English, we think, oh, those are two different words. Faith and believe are different words. But in the original language, in the Greek where this was written, it's the same word. And so the word for faith is pistis. The word for belief is pisteu. So what it is, is faith is a noun. So right here in verse 22, when you see faith, that's a noun. And so it's encompassing the essence of what you believe. Belief is a verb. It's putting into action what you have faith in. So faith and belief are the same word. What you have faith in, you believe in. But there's an even better English word that can be used as a noun or a verb that captures the meaning of the original language better. And that word is trust. What you believe in, you have faith in, you are trusting in. The words all mean the same thing, but the word trust captures a greater range of meaning that we need to trust in Jesus. Only by completely trusting in Christ alone can you receive the righteousness of God. It says, for there is no distinction, verse 22, verse 23 is powerful. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all equally guilty. We all fall short of not giving God the glory that he deserves. We all love our idols more than we tend to love God. We're all equally condemned, and yet this text is telling us that we can all be equally reconciled if we completely trust in Jesus. Salvation has always been by faith alone. Even our Old Testament believers that will one day meet in heaven, these amazing men and women of faith, you think they were saved by their works? No. Salvation has always been, always will be by faith alone. Now, they didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. They didn't know how it would look and Jesus on a cross. Now, they didn't know all the specifics of how God would work it out, but they were trusting that one day God, through the Messiah, would make a way for them to be rescued. And they were trusting in God. And that's why they were saved. The same as us today. We're trusting in the Messiah. Complete trust in the God that you can't see. Even when you feel as though God's forgotten about you. You trust in Christ even when you don't feel his presence. You trust him even when you feel empty on the inside. When the suffering is so great and, and your chest is so heavy and it like, feels like taking a breath is hard. You trust him. When you're feeling that sting of disappointment or the pain of rejection, you trust him. When you're struggling with something that you're honestly trying to overcome and it just seems so big, you still trust him. When you don't even have a contract and it's expiring and the talk hasn't even led to signing a contract and you're going to board a plane next week and you don't know if you're going to come back and you don't have a job in your home country, you trust him. When your children drive you crazy, 
or when your parents drive you crazy. You trust him. We trust him. Because he has proven himself to be trustworthy. He's not forsaken us. He's not going to start. Now we continue to find our hope in the person of Jesus. But why? Why do we run to Jesus in the middle of pain or disappointment or when it's hard? Number three, God's righteousness is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus. God's righteousness is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus. We are not reconciled to God because of our performance. We are not declared just because of what we do. We receive this radical righteousness from God only because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Our hope is not rooted in our feelings or our emotions that come and go. Our hope is grounded in the cross of Calvary. The fact that God loves you is so plain to see. Look to the cross. You look to the cross. There's no greater display of God's love for you than the cross. And when it feels like no one loves you, that's probably not true for one. And part of this church, I can guarantee you it's not true. You're loved. But when it feels like, I just don't know if God's there or does he love me, you look to the cross. That is what our hope is rooted on, built upon, on the objective, total, absolute truth of the cross of Calvary. Verses 24 and 25 show this so powerfully. And we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So it says that we're justified, we're declared righteous and declared not guilty by grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And there's two key words that we need to look at here. There's a lot in this text, I know. One is redemption. He just says redemption. That's from the marketplace. He borrowed that word from the, the commercial world. When you had a slave, you had to pay a price to set the slave free. So the redemption price was the price you paid to liberate the slave from slavery. So, so to redeem is to pay the price to set free. Propitiation, that's a big word. It's an older English word that we use, but it's here in the Bible. To, to be propitious means to be made favorable. So to propitiate, all it means is to make favorable. And so when we look here on propitiation, what it means is to offer a sacrifice in order to turn aside God's righteous anger, to make you favorable with God. Now, the, the pagan religions did this all the time. They would have propitiations. If you wanted to go across the sea and you were afraid that maybe the god Neptune was, was in a bad mood that day, you might not make it across the ocean. So what did you do? You would go to Neptune's temple. You would offer him a sacrifice. You would appease him. You would bribe Neptune in hopes that when you went into his domain, the sea, that it would go well for you. And so the, the ancient pagans would, would offer propitiations. They'd offer sacrifices to appease their gods. 
that were ill-tempered and were just not trustworthy. But there's a really big difference with the ancient pagan religions view of propitiation and what the Bible describes here as propitiation. This is not a pagan thing. We're not bribing God. What you see here in the Bible is God himself in the person of the Son turned away the anger of God by paying the price for you and for me. So he paid it himself. This is not some ill-tempered, untrustworthy God. This is a God who is good and gracious and mighty to save. And it says, verse 25, it's received by faith. If you're here today, this is new to you, you're, you're, you're kind of seeking, you're checking out this whole, what is Christianity and following Jesus? Why, why do we say in the Bible it's revealing, why must it be by faith alone? Because faith is the anti-work. Because we let to ourselves, we want to earn it. And God is saying, you can't. When you turn to Jesus and trust him alone, you're admitting that you cannot save yourself. And then God gets all the glory for your salvation. And that's what God is after. People who bend the knee and say, Jesus, you are worth it. I love you more than anything else the world has to offer. I give you my life because you are worthy. And I love you because you first love me. Because you fill me. You satisfy me. And everything else leaves me hungry and thirsty. And yet you, Jesus, satisfy me. And so we want to obey him, not out of duty, but because he's changed our hearts. Only Jesus can do that, and it's by faith alone. Lastly, as we close, God's righteousness is revealed through the cross of Christ. It's revealed through the cross of Christ. We see this in the last verse and a half from this section. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God had been patient, patiently waiting, not executing his ultimate judgment on human sin until the cross. And then on the cross, God unleashed all of his fury, all of his wrath, all of his holy righteousness. His holy wrath was all unloaded upon Jesus who hung on a cross. And he was condemned for you and for me. So the cross is the greatest display of justice ever seen and that will ever be seen. You're seeing justice, where he was the sacrifice. He represented you and me, and he paid it all. He endured our wrath and condemnation. But the cross is also the greatest display of love. There's no greater display of love. He did it for you because he loves you, wants you to know him. He wants to bless you. But the condition is trust. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? 
every blessing that we have as followers of Jesus is rooted in the cross, everyone. So we are forgiven at the cross. We are loved at the cross. We are redeemed because of the cross. We are justified by the cross. We are accepted by God because of the cross. You are being sanctified by His Spirit because of the cross. You have the hope of the resurrection because of the cross. Every single blessing that God gives to us graciously is because Jesus paid for it on the cross. Without the cross, we have no hope, but he is not dead. As we celebrate next week, Easter, he's alive and he's ruling and he wants to satisfy you. And so we now, with all of our hearts, we believe this and we feed our souls from God's word every day and we remember who we are in Christ, that we are redeemed, adopted, loved, justified, sanctified, forgiven, and we have a glorious resurrection that awaits us. And we feed our souls and remember these truths and we fight against the lies with this truth. Every day as we read and meditate on his word, we must live gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered lives. That's who we are. And through the power of his spirit, he begins to conform us to the image of Christ and we display his glory. If you're here, and if you've never heard this before, you don't have the option of saying, oh, that was great. I'm glad I came. You don't have the option. You could say, I don't believe it. I don't believe God sent Jesus. I don't believe he died for me. I'm not a sinner. I'm fine my own way. You, you have that right to reject what you heard from God's word today but you're making that choice. And yet those of us that have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus alone, we have hope, hope for whatever is afflicting us today. And there are those out beyond these walls who don't know and need that hope. May we be the ambassadors that tell them. May we tell people that this radical righteousness from God is available. Will you please pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it challenges us and yet how it encourages us. And we know because of the cross that you love us. You upheld your justice. You are just and the justifier. You justify us. And you did it to display your glory because you love us. Thank you for loving us despite ourselves. Thank you for Jesus Thank you for his work on the cross. Thank you for the gift of salvation. I pray for anyone in this room that right now is grappling with this truth. May they with all their hearts repent of their sins and trust in you alone and experience the joy of knowing you. We praise you for you are worthy in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.